party people. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, everybody. So Bob Mueller testified, and um, I have what I thought was the most interesting moment from um, his comments that I'm going to share with you in just a second. But ultimately, you know, as I've been saying all along, um, nothing's really coming of this, so it's kind of annoying to watch, like, all of the political conversation in the last day in this country has been about Bob Mueller. <laughs> it's like, we're kind of wasting our time here. I mean, I'm happy he testified because we got out of the way and he's on the record, but there's really, like, nothing, nothing's coming of this. The Republicans are claiming victory. The Democrats are claiming victory. And I'm just like, wow, politics is incredibly shitty. So I'll play the the thing that I learned yesterday, um, which I actually did find interesting. Then we have Jeffrey Epstein allegedly trying to off himself, although I'm a little skeptical. (laughs) I'm a little skeptical. It just so happens to be that the guy who's the main character in, like, a giant international pedophile ring story tried to kill himself when that's the dude who has all the dirt on all of the creepy-ass pedophiles. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm getting a little Alex Jonesy and a little conspiratorial, but am I really? We're going to talk about that. And then uh, Sean Hannity and Karl Rove go after Justice Democrats, and they do the old uh, Republican tap dance of like, oh boy, I hope Democrats go in this direction because then it is so wonderful for Republicans as if they have, like, the best interest of the Democratic Party in heart. And um, later on, I'll give you an awesome breakdown of how Tucker Carlson 
and one of his guests have perfected the fake populist tap dance. Um, so hang on for that, too. That's, that should be great. But anyway, let's get started. And Bob Mueller is up at the plate. Here we go. So Bob Mueller testified in front of Congress. Um, listen, it was mostly a dud, in my opinion. Were there interesting moments? Yes. And I'm going to show you the moments that I thought were most interesting in just a second here. But, you know, what's so annoying about this is exactly what you could have predicted beforehand is exactly what's now happening. So the fallout is Republicans running everywhere saying, you know, hey, we won. This thing's totally over. Everybody shut up. Trump, you know, being vindicated and and gloating on Twitter about it. Um, That was entirely predictable. Basically, no matter what Mueller said, that's what the Republicans would do, and that's what uh, Trump would do. Now, on the flip side, it's the same thing for the Democrats. They're claiming, you know, that this somehow is bringing down Trump when it's not. It's not bringing down Trump. But they're, you know, taking their little nuggets from the testimony, and they're harping away on the nuggets that sound, I need to stop saying the word nuggets, but (laughs) they're harping away on, you know, the things that they think makes Trump look the worst. So, you know, exactly like we knew beforehand, exactly what's been the case with every single um, story involving Russiagate and involving the Mueller investigation, you have the Democrats, hair on fire, oh my God, we finally got him. Oh my God, Trump has been eviscerated. Trump has been decimated. Trump is done. And then the Republican side, oh no, there's nothing to see here at all. Donald Trump didn't do anything wrong ever. You know, it's all good. It's all, you know, he gets away with everything. Well, they don't say he gets away with everything because they act like he didn't do anything. But, you know, just claiming vindication through and through. So, but is it a good thing that he testified? Well, yeah, because at least, you know, now we get him more on the record. However, he didn't, he didn't say anything that wasn't like in the report. And he appeared, as many people have pointed out at times, to be like, just really like a confused old man who didn't really have great command of his own report. So, again, it's good he testified because at least then we could say, hey, he's on the record and he's crystal clear. Um, But at the same time, fundamentally, is anything at all going to come from this? Sorry, nothing's going to come from this. But I warned you about that all along. You could be mad at me about that if, if you don't like that, but it's the truth, which is why nothing's coming from this, which is why all the, the noise and the chatter in the aftermath is still hitting a brick wall because the next step would be what? Well, if the Democrats wanted to do anything, Mueller made it crystal clear. Oh, I can't indict a sitting president. So that would mean if you want to do something, you got to impeach. And I know we've discussed impeachment ad nauseum on this show, but the fact of the matter is, There's no way Trump would actually have any negative consequences if he were to be impeached because he would walk away, you know, looking like, uh, hey, I defeated the phony witch hunt yet again, and I'm puffing my chest out, my gelatinous chest out, and, uh, you know, I'm going to get a bump in the polls. And that might happen because that's what happened with Clinton when they went after Clinton um, is he he went around – saying he was vindicated, and the American people actually sided with him because they said, okay, this is a little ridiculous. You're kind of going after the guy for a blowjob. So 
not much is coming from this, bro. <laughs> I hate to tell you. But anyway, now, having said all that, here's the moments that I found most interesting. Let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. And you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Under Department of Justice policy, the president could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice crimes after he leaves office, is correct? True. Was there sufficient evidence to convict President Trump or anyone else with obstruction of justice? We did not make that calculation. How could you not have made the calculation? Uh, the OLC opinion, the OLC opinion, Office of Legal Counsel, indicates that we cannot indict a city president. So one of the tools that a prosecutor would use is not there. Uh, could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the President of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. Now that is interesting, and that I did not know. Um, I thought, and I still think, that the investigation that Trump needs to look out for is in the Southern District of New York, where they're looking through all of his financial dealings, because there's no doubt that there's just countless, sketchy things, to say the least, um, with his businesses. And if people are combing through those records, and they are in the Southern District of New York, you're going to find crimes. You're going to find maybe half a dozen crimes, and you can go after him on that front. Now, it never occurred to me that, hey, if they wanted to, when Trump is no longer president, he could be charged with obstruction of justice. Wow. Okay. <laughs> now, will he be? Well, that's the thing that's so frustrating about Mueller is that he, as he pretends to be like a straight shooter, he never really gives that straight of an answer. He, because what would he say if you pressed him on that? Oh, I didn't say he's going to be charged with obstruction of justice. I just said that theoretically it is possible to charge a president with obstruction of justice when they're no longer president. A little bit weak sauce, bro. A little bit. A little bit. So will he be? I don't know. And, and here's why. Even though I think you probably did do obstruction of justice, um, you have to prove intent. And, you know, the counter argument could be, no, it, it, Trump didn't intend to obstruct justice because he was covering something up. Trump just thought all along that this was a stupid witch hunt and he was acting erratically and impulsively, but there was no malintent. So it, you would have to, it's a high bar to reach um, to, to go after him for obstruction of justice, even though certainly um, you could say it appears like he was doing that for sure. It's a much different thing to prove in a court of law. So I don't know. I tend to think that nothing's going to happen on that front when he's out of office either. But as I've always maintained, I think he's got other problems when he's no longer president. And I think they will probably indict him on a variety of financial crimes because I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming on that front, whether it's uh, money laundering or, or uh, tax fraud or, uh, you know, a bunch of financial crimes that he's been allegedly engaged in that we've seen some pretty detailed reporting on. But, yeah, I mean, this whole testimony, that's really all I got out of it. You had Republicans kind of grandstanding and spiking the football and trying to catch Mueller and contradictions, and sometimes they did, to be fair. Um, 
And you had Democrats just always just trying to get Mueller to keep saying, like, no, I did not fully exonerate President Trump. And he did say that a bunch of times. But then it's like, okay, what will be done about that? And the answer is Dickie McGee's axe. Absolutely nothing. Because we heard from Pelosi after this. Uh, apparently Pelosi and Nadler had gotten into it because Nadler was like, let's open an impeachment inquiry now. And Pelosi was like, mm, still, I don't know about that because I don't think we have all that strong a case. So that's where we're at. I don't know if we'll be getting beyond that. Um, but the election's coming up soon anyway, and he's certainly incredibly beatable. Let's be serious about that. He's certainly incredibly beatable. You just have to make sure to run a populist, anti-corruption, left candidate who knows how to handle Trump and not somebody who's rolling the dice that's like a Hillary 2.0 type character. Biden! Biden! Okay. So Jeffrey Epstein, I don't know how to speak. So Jeffrey Epstein was finally nabbed on some of his creepy sex crimes. Um, And that's a big deal because he knows where all the bodies are buried, man. He has dirt on, like, everybody. Every international elite you could think of, he's probably got a file this thick on him. So this is kind of a big deal. Now, I think we've spoken about Jeffrey Epstein once or twice before. I haven't talked about him recently, but just to give everybody the Cliff Notes version, this is a dude who is really rich. Now, how he got rich is kind of up in the air. Did he make it in finance? Or is there something else going on that he did for a living? Like, I don't know, being a pimp and taking underage girls and, like, selling access to them to um, rich and famous people. Uh, Well, there was definitely a little bit of that. And he had gotten caught in the past on, I don't remember what the exact charge was, but basically he went to prison that was more like a vacation where, you know, he was allowed out of his cell to go do work work in that instance, I think, being some finance stuff, and then he would go back in, and it was like, you know, when you're really rich, that's the kind of prison you go to. You you get, like, very special treatment, and there was a sweetheart deal that was cut um, involving some prosecutors and some government officials, and just so everybody knows, some of those people are now in Trump's administration. (laughs) So, really sketchy, really weird. Now, When he was arrested recently, cops apparently found at his mansion, one of his mansions, I should say, he's got multiple, um, you know, I think it was old school VHS tapes, but whatever it was, it was like actual records that has the names of a lot of people that we all know. And the idea is, hey, maybe that is like all the evidence you could possibly imagine in what was actually going down you know, behind the scenes, and Jeffrey Epstein knew, if I ever get pulled down, if people ever come after me, well, I ain't going down alone. I got a lot of stuff on other people, 
So maybe these very power, powerful people in very high up places, they'll know that I'm Teflon and you can't come after me or else I blow the lid off this whole, you know, international sex crime pedophile ring. Um, now, Jeffrey Epstein was friends with both Bill Clinton and uh, Donald Trump. And I think he called his plane the Lolita Express. And there was a great tweet I saw the other day, and it, it said something like, what was it, two of the five living presidents or maybe even three of the five living presidents have been on Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile jet, and that's not a very good ratio to me. <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. So um, having given you all the backstory, look at what just happened last night. NBC New York is reporting that accused child rapist and sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein was found injured on the floor of his prison cell Wednesday. NBC cited two sources saying that the injuries may have been a suicide attempt. However, a different source told NBC uh, that the injuries were so minor it could have been an attempt to be sent to a better jail or a fancier prison cell. Assault also hasn't been ruled out. There is data that supports claims men accused of convicted sex crimes with children are the targets, target of violence behind bars. A fourth source said that a former police officer serving time for murder and drugs was questioned about the incident. Well, that's weird. Now, there are also other rumors floating around that this police officer, uh, this former police officer, again, who was arrested for and serving time for murder and drugs, that he was found with a cell phone. So a dude behind bars was found with a cell phone, and then he maybe takes action against Jeffrey Epstein. And could be an attempt to kill him. Could be just, uh, you know, beating him up. It could be a suicide attempt. I mean, listen, if you need me to connect the dots a little further and, and to tell you what some possibilities are here, I just told you, this dude knows where all the bodies are buried. And that's not a question, that's not up in the air, that's not speculation. We know that this dude knows very, very powerful people who came to him for sex crimes. And he would get young girls and he would basically be their pimp. A child sex trafficker is what we're talking about here. So he's got dirt on the most powerful people in the world, and then it just so happens that when he's behind bars, not even for that long, there might be an attempt on his life. Isn't it wild that it is a legit possibility <laughs> that either Bill Clinton or Donald Trump is behind this attempt on Jeffrey Epstein's life. Now, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial. I don't want to sound too Alex Jonesy. I'm just giving you possibilities. It is possible that he tried to take his own life. It is possible that, I don't know, there was some sort of uh, dispute behind bars with this guy, 
and so the guy just fucked him up. That's possible. But it's also very, very possible that they're trying to off him because they're trying to keep the lid on all the dirt that this guy knows. Because Jeffrey Epstein is a terrible dude. But he's got a wealth of knowledge. Knowledge that all of us, I'm sure, would be stunned by. Maybe he knows, you know, some shit that from the royal family in the UK. Um, I think he's hung out with some of them before. Very powerful and famous people. You know, uh, Alan Dershowitz, apparently, uh, knows Jeffrey Epstein, and there's been accusations against Alan Dershowitz. And he's, you know, pretending like, what do you mean? I don't even know what you mean. Jeffrey Epstein? Jeffrey who? Who? I don't even know who that is. Um, Charlie Rose was another one, but definitely Donald Trump, definitely Bill Clinton. Now, they swear up and down like, bro, I am shocked by this news about Jeffrey Epstein. And to tell you the truth, I didn't even like him that much, and I didn't even know him that well. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever, bro. Jeffrey who? I don't even know who that is, dog. Like, that's been their response. But, again, dude's got a vault with evidence that's a mountain high. And it just so happens that he almost gets off in prison. This story ain't over. This story ain't over, man. And let me just say this. If you immediately accept the idea of, like, oh, no, he's just, you know, now he's just really miserable and he's just trying to kill himself. I mean, it's a possibility, but let's not act like we really know that. And let's not act like there aren't other possibilities, some of which include some of the very powerful and famous people trying to get this guy killed so that he doesn't out them. Reality is stranger than fiction. Okay, we are moving on, moving on. All right, now I got to talk about the BDS bill, which is honestly, this story broke my heart big time. Big, 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 big time. And I think a lot of you guys are going to feel some type of way about this story too. It's, It's a shame. So this week, there was a vote on House Resolution 246. The bill is, and I quote here, opposing efforts to delegitimize the state of Israel and the global boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement targeting Israel. So the whole point of this resolution is to have the U.S. government officially state we oppose BDS. We are condemning BDS. That's the whole point of this. Now, the original version of it had some teeth, okay? And the teeth were like, no, let's let's support efforts by the states to basically withhold any and all uh, government contracts and money from people who support a boycott of Israel. 
So, in other words, it was a very, very, very clear example of an unconstitutional um, approach to this issue. Because they are literally saying, we are going to target political speech that we don't like in a material and substantive way. Now, thankfully, there's been at least two, maybe even three, separate court decisions that have said in no uncertain terms, this isn't even close to legal. This is completely unconstitutional. The government, whether it's the state government or the federal government, cannot target people for political speech. We live in a free society. People can boycott whoever the hell they want to boycott, and they shouldn't have to fear retribution by the U.S. government or their respective state governments. So that was the older resolutions, okay? Now it's gotten to the point where it appears like APAC, who's one of the groups that's pushing this, uh, APAC and a lot of the you know, far right-wing, super pro-Israeli politicians, they've realized, okay, we cannot, like, we can't be that bold with it, that brazen with it. We have to reel it in a little bit. Because, I, I mean, Andrew Cuomo, who backs a lot of these anti-BDS bills and tried to, I think, implemented one in New York, he hilariously called for a boycott of, I think it was Indiana, or may, it may have been another uh, Republican state, but because uh, a right-wing state, um, did a, a piece of anti-LGBTQ legislation, he urged New Yorkers, hey, don't go there. We're boycotting that state. So according to Andrew Cuomo, in the United States of America, you have every right to boycott the United States of America, another state in the United States of America, but you shouldn't be allowed to boycott Israel. You want to talk about absurd favoritism, and you want to talk about uh, an obvious, illegal, and unconstitutional crackdown on freedom of speech and the First Amendment. Well, there it is right there. So, since, um, you know, these politicians realize we can't go that far because that's obviously unconstitutional. Well, what are we going to do? And somebody came up with the brilliant idea of, um, well, what if we say, well, we oppose uh, BDS and we oppose all attempts to delegitimize the state of Israel. What if we did that, but we also made clear in the same resolution, like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're still legally allowed and constitutionally allowed to, you know, have free speech and boycott whoever you want to boycott. All we're saying is the U.S. government is in this weaselly-ass resolution that we officially condemn and we oppose any efforts to delegitimize the state of Israel and any support of BDS. And also, of course, in the same resolution, because of the whole point of the resolution, there's an attempt to conflate good faith criticism of Israel and support of BDS with, say it with me, anti-Semitism. That's the whole point of this. That, you know, the Republicans can turn around and say, well, look at these, who, who didn't support this resolution? Look at these anti-Semites. Can you believe that they hate all Jews? That's how this is going to be used. And if you're a Democrat and you supported this, and then at any point in the future, you say something maybe against illegal settlements, let's say, they're going to turn around and they're going to accuse you of being a hypocrite. They're going to say, well, look at your position on the BDS resolution. You agreed that it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel and to criticize the settlements and try to take action. And now you're criticizing the settlements? Well, I mean, you're, you're either a hypocrite or an anti-Semite also now, aren't you? 
Again, APAC is behind this. They're pushing it. And I hope you're sitting down. I'm going to tell you who the people were, the brave people who opposed this resolution, okay? Blumenauer, Carson, Dingle, Garcia, Grijalva, Jayapal, Barbara Lee, Massey, McCollum, Moore, Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Pingree, Pocan, Rush, Tlaib, Watson, Coleman. Those are the only Congress people who said, you know what? No, we're not playing this game. Uh, it's not the, the job or the business of the U.S. government to, I officially condemn and I'm against the boycotts in this instance. Bad. I oppose it. I condemn it. What, the, what business is it of, of the U.S. government what free citizens do in free society and who they choose to boycott and what they want to do? I'll answer that for you. None. It, and I would argue that's also unconstitutional. Because they are saying we officially condemn this political viewpoint, this specific political viewpoint. Fuck out of here with that nonsense. What a joke. So I told you, everybody, these are the people who you know, oppose this terrible resolution. So thank you to all those people who oppose this resolution. You know, some of the people, by the way, again, 398 to 17 was the vote. So only 17 did the right thing. The people who did the wrong thing include Katie Porter, who's supposed to be a lovely progressive, Ayanna Presley, Ro Khanna, and Tulsi Gabbard. That's embarrassing, and that's shameful. And I'm going to level with you guys. That is a giant stain on their records. Giant stain. You think we are, we're not viewing this kindly right now? The left is not viewing this kindly right now? <laughs> Take a look at history in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now, and how they'll look at your vote on this resolution. Because just so we're clear, the best analogy one can make about this is, in apartheid South Africa, the United States was allied with the racist, white South African government. They, we were pro-apartheid, okay? What we're talking about here is the equivalent of the U.S. Congress saying, we condemn the efforts to protest and to boycott South African apartheid, because South Africa is an ally of ours. And you're delegitimizing the state of South Africa. So we officially oppose and condemn a boycott and protest of the, the racist South African regime. That is exactly what the equivalent is. That's what it is. That's the analogy. It makes perfect sense. So you think we're mad and we're upset today, lefties today, looking at our otherwise wonderful representatives who betrayed us here? <laughs> Wait until the future when they're writing in the history books about your, you know, the, the kind of what, what your record is, what your legacy is as a congressperson. And there's a little asterisk that, that you know, mentions, by the way, they supported an official condemnation of the only peaceful movement to try to bring about Palestinian human dignity and human rights. 
And let me ask these people a question. If not BDS, please explain in detail what, in your mind, Palestinians are allowed to do. Because obviously if they use violence, you condemn that and you say that's terrible. Some would say Palestinians have a right to self-defense. If Israel has a right to defend itself, do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? But obviously, needless to say, because every time it's happened, that's been the response. When Palestinians use violence, you go, oh, I condemn that. That's terrible. That's wrong. That's evil. Any uh, violence by the Palestinians is, defi- is by definition offensive in the, in the eyes and the mind of a lot of these congresspeople. Okay, so they can't use violence. Got it. That's immoral. Sure. But then what are they allowed to do? BDS is, is an attempt to be nonviolent and to bring about Palestinian human rights and dignity. And by the way, for the record here, there's a lot of misinformation on BDS. BDS states on their own website that we're not taking a position as to two-state solution or one-state solution. We're just saying Palestinians deserve their human rights. And also, there is a difference, let's be clear, and this bill makes no distinction, but there is a difference between BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, of all Israel, and BDS of illegal settlements. This bill makes no distinction. It just condemns all of BDS and implies it's all anti-Semitic and it's all hating all Jews. When Ayanna Presley tried to do, you know, a little tweet thread about this to explain her vote, American Jews from her own district responded and said, because Ayanna Presley tried to use their identity to shield herself. And they responded and they were like, uh-uh, 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 no, no, no. I'm a Jewish American. I'm one of your constituents. I totally agree with you. Keep my name and my identity out of your mouth. Not interested in you using us to deflect and obfuscate from your shitty-ass vote. So this is um, disgusting. BDS is the only nonviolent way to try to bring about Palestinian human rights and dignity. And some of our best Congress people were on the wrong side of this. There's no excuse for this. There's no amount of rationalization or obfuscation or terrible arguments that, that can wiggle your way out of this one. There's, it, there's not even a shred. Like sometimes there are, you know, pieces of legislation where I look at them and I go, no, this one isn't cut and dry. This one isn't really all that clear. I think there's an argument for a good progressive to be on either side of this one. Plenty of instances like that. This is not one of those instances. Now, having said that all, I want to lead you with Rashida Tlaib. She gave a very moving statement on this issue. Let's watch. I stand before you as the granddaughter of Palestinian grandmother, my city, who yearns to experience equality, human dignity, and freedom. I stand before you, the daughter of Palestinian immigrants, parents who experience being stripped of their human rights, the right to freedom of travel, equal treatment. So I can't stand by and watch this attack on our freedom of speech and the right to boycott the racist policies of the government and the state of Israel. I love our country's freedom of speech, Madam Speaker. Dissent is how we nurture democracy and grow to be better and more humane and just. And this is why I oppose Resolution 243. All Americans have a right, a constitutional right, guaranteed by the First Amendment to freedom of speech, to petition their government and to participate in boycotts. 
speech in pursuit of civil and human rights at home and abroad is protected by our First Amendment. That is one reason why our First Amendment is so powerful. With a few exceptions, the government is simply not allowed to discriminate against speech based on its viewpoint or its speaker. The right to boycott is deeply rooted in the fabric of our country. What was the Boston Tea Party but a boycott? Where would we be now without the boycott led by civil rights activists in the 1950s and 60s, like the Montgomery Bus Boycott and the United Farm Workers Great Boycott? Some of this country's most important advances in racial equality and equity and workers' rights have been achieved through collective action protected by our Constitution. Americans of conscience have long and proud history of participating in boycotts, specifically to advocate for human rights abroad. Americans boycotted Nazi Germany in response to dehumanization, imprisonment, and genocide of Jewish people. In the 1980s, many of us in this very body boycotted South African goods in the fight against apartheid. Our, free, our right to free speech is being threatened with this resolution. It sets a dangerous precedent because it attempts to delegitimize a certain people's political speech and to send a message that our government can and will take action against speech it doesn't like. Madam Speaker, the Supreme Court has time and time again recognized that expressive conduct is protected by the Constitution. From burning a flag to baking a cake, efforts to restrict and target that protected speech run the risk of eroding the civil rights that form the foundation of our democracy. All Americans have the right to participate in boycotts, and I oppose all legislative efforts that target speech. Our, I urge Congress, state governments, and civil rights leaders from all communities to preserve our Constitution, preserve our Bill of Rights, and preserve the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech by opposing HRS 246 and the boycott, anti-boycott efforts wherever they rise. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Israel is not interested in a two-state solution. Israel is not interested in a one-state solution. Israel is not interested in a solution. So since that's the case, you have to force them to be interested in a solution. Now, most of the people who watch this show would agree, and I've been clear with my position on this all along, I think you want to avoid violence at all costs. You have a right to self-defense, but I also think it's incumbent upon everybody to avoid violence. So that being said, what's the best possible answer to try to bring about change, force change? BDS, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. By the way, it's working in many of the occupied territories, just so you know, which is why they're scrambling to try to condemn it. Uh, as, and this is as of maybe two or three years ago, but uh, at least 20% of the businesses that were stationed in occupied territories have left the occupied territories. Why? Because they were feeling the hurt, because they were being boycotted. And there, was, there were consequences for terrible actions. And I'd like to know where all my free speech warriors are on this. And don't give me the bullshit, well, the resolution that's specifically to condemn free speech, the resolution that says, the government officially opposes boycott efforts of a specific state. It's 
not really against free speech because it also says in the same Weasley-ass resolution that this doesn't have teeth and that we still support free speech even though the whole point of the resolution is to be against free speech. So without using any obviously shitty, weaselly, stupid arguments, where are all my free speech warriors? Ben Shapiro? Rave Dubin? Where you at? Oh, that's right. You only trot that out to badger, pink-haired uh, college kids who are confused. When it, when it comes time for actual, actual official crackdowns on free speech, like the First Amendment, like the government taking action against speech, <laughs> well, I don't like that speech. I don't like that speech. So, yeah, that I'm cool with cracking down on. Frauds, all of you frauds. Okay, with Donald Trump giving a speech on Afghanistan, and he gave us this really creepy moment. It wasn't a speech, he was answering a question, I should say. So Trump was answering a question about Afghanistan, and um, he gave us this incredibly creepy moment. What? <laughs> Who says that? Who's bro, you're the most powerful man on the planet. You can't just say shit like that. And he said very clearly, I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to, I could just, you know, wipe it off the map and get rid of 10 million people. I have plans. Quote, I have plans. Oh, you do? So you were talking to your generals, you were talking to the Pentagon and, and, and you know, some of the people in your administration, and you said... Hey, draft me an option of total and complete nuclear annihilation and obliteration of, of a country that didn't attack us. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let me get this straight, Don. You considered, like, okay, let's look at all the options that we have. Let's Iraq, we got 1,000 boots on the ground, maybe 5,000 boots on the ground. We got, you know, maybe just air power. Or, uh, g- give, me, give me some more plans. What do we got? Okay, so what do we have for Afghanistan? We got maybe keeping X amount of troops there or having a a station nearby to just keep our eye to make sure there's no extra jihadist activity. And um, what's this option here? Oh, that's right. Nuclear annihilation of 10 million people. I'll consider that one. Thank you very much. Starting to think nukes were a bad idea, bro. (laughs) I mean, we... (laughs) We knew that they were, they were bad and they were disastrous. And I always, I could never get over the irony of 
the only country to ever nuke anybody, killing massive numbers of people, always being the country that, like, yells at other countries for uh, nuclear activity and developing nuclear weapons. Those countries must be like, it was you motherfuckers that just killed at least hundreds of thousands of, you know, innocent Japanese people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You're the ones that killed babies. You're the ones that killed women. You know, what? civilians, what, what are you talking about? You're going to badger me? You're going to badger us? We didn't do anything. We didn't kill anybody. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? When you see, like, the reality TV star, impulsive-ass president, like, casually talk about nuclear annihilation, that is a little bit of a light bulb moment, isn't it? It's like, oh, maybe we're just totally in over our heads, and this technology should not exist and should never have existed. Apparently, one of the people who helped create nuclear weapons had massive regrets, and he was, like, haunted by it until his dying day. And you can see why. I mean... It's just, I, I, human beings are just not ready for this kind of responsibility. Um, it's just a terrible thing that exists. I mean, just casual conversation. Hey, if I wanted to, you just kill 10 million people. I don't, I don't want to. Hey, I don't want to do it, all right? Oh, thank you, sir. With your incredibly strong moral compass, Don. Everybody, Don is anti-genocide, everybody. He's anti-genocide. Forget the one in Yemen that we're currently backing and we're sitting back as they blockade the country and they starve the country and there's a cholera outbreak and, you know, Saudi Arabia's massacring innocent people and bombing mosques and open-air markets and hospitals. Aside from that genocide that we're currently actively supporting, outside of that genocide, Donnie is anti-genocide. He doesn't want to do a direct genocide, ladies and gentlemen. He's against massacring 10 million people in the blink of an eye in Afghanistan. He considered it, but he said, you know what? I'm a good guy, bro. I have a good heart. No genocide today, ladies and gentlemen. No genocide. Don, thank you, Don. Make America great again. Appreciate that. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, um, Trump recently told the Justice Democrats that they can leave America if they don't like it. Trump's also said a lot of other stuff that you're about to hear. (laughs) Then we'll talk about Bernie's impromptu Medicare for All town hall that happened in the street. That is, like, beautiful, and I can't wait to show you that. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
Son of a bitch. All right, we're back, everybody. I want to do a little, uh, I want to do a little impromptu segment here. First of all, I literally just chugged an entire can of hashtag Big Seltzer. And I'm still going. I got more seltzer here. I had too much caffeine this morning, and now I'm parched. I am parched. It's a good word. I got to use that word more. I'm going to use it in instances that make no sense, though. (laughs) I'm going to use it as a stand-in for, like, awesome. When somebody says something that's good, I'm going to be like, Ha, ah, bro, totally parched, bro. You're so parched, dog. Mm. Okay. All right, let me tell you what I just found on Twitter. <clears throat> I was just scrolling through Twitter, and I found something pretty funny that I wanted to share with you guys. I also never thought of this on my own. I'm a little mad at myself for not ever, like, entertaining the question who I think the worst um, Democratic presidential candidate is. So Michael Brooks asked that question of everybody. He said, who is your least favorite Democratic uh, candidate? Um, Hassan Piker said, still with the bald one who got elected because of gerrymandering, who looks like Biden without the hair plugs, Joe Baldwin. (laughs) And can never remember the name of. I think he's talking about um, John Delaney, right? Um, Winkle the Bernie bro said, I would say, I wouldn't say my least favorite. My most disliked is easy. Of the top candidates, I would say Biden with Kamala in a close second. John Delaney, however, is another level of insufferable. So I think we have two, that's two votes right there for, um, for what's-his-face, John Delaney. Then we got John Iderola chiming in saying, I've got a 12-way tie. <laughs> That's true. Somebody else says Marianne Williamson. I'm pretty sure that person who said that is joking around. I'm pretty sure. Especially because um, uh, Michael Brooks has done a few segments recently that are very positive on uh, Marianne Williamson. And I have to say, he's correct to do those segments, particularly because Marianne Williamson went on um, Rave Dubin's show and kind of ran circles around him. Now, my take on Marianne Williamson is still, you know, still not great. Like, I'm still not high on her, and here's why. I do think she's just like that old-school hippie. She's got that old-school hippie vibe with, like, you know... Uh, like yoga moms probably love her, and she's just got a little too much woo-woo in her for me. You know, too much of like, listen, bro, I totally cured a couple of diseases with healing crystals, and I, why won't Big Pharma tell you about this? <laughs> like, it's just, she's got a little bit of that vibe in her, which might be totally unfair, but nonetheless, that's the sense I get from her. Um, and I don't think that that, I think that embodying some sort of a, you know, liberal stereotype like that is not... A winning formula, and it's it's a little silly, but nonetheless, she did run circles around Rave Dubin, and she's obviously just so much better educated than Rave Dubin, and she actually made him look ridiculous, which, again, that's not hard. That's a low bar, but it was impressive. She did a good job, so, you know, check that out if you haven't seen that. Um, let's see if we can find a few more answers here. Joe Hansy Biden 
that might be a secular talk viewer. And to be clear, the exact name is Hansi Uncle Joseph. <laughs> uh, somebody says, of the favorites, Joe Biden, probably John Delaney, Biden, Biden, Yang, and it's not even close. Wow, that's a little surprising. Um, Biden, Buttigieg, Hickenlooper, Delaney, Cloud Boot Jar, Beto, de Blasio. Then we got Biden, Biden, overall Biden, Biden, Harris, Pete, tie for left, Biden, 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 Biden. Okay, everybody's saying Biden. Uh, I mean, that appears, it appears to be Biden is the least liked, followed by um, Delaney is, is the second one. But, you know, I hate to say this, but since it's, this is a little bit of an impromptu segment and it's on the spot, I didn't give myself like 10 minutes to really think about it and flesh it out. But I don't agree with people. I mean, I hate Biden, don't get me wrong. But I don't, I don't know. He's not, I really dislike. I, I don't. He's not the worst of the worst. I can't come up with just one, so I'll give you guys a few of my least favorite. Um, I really, really, really hate Buttigieg and Beto. I do, and here's why. They're just trying to do an Obama impression. Now, listen. It would be one thing if they were doing the Obama impression, but they also were kind of dedicated to good policy, in which case I could overlook the Obama impression. But the Obama impression really gets under my skin because, hey, man, you guys are running for president. And, like, you're running for president and you're still at a point in your career where you haven't developed your own identity yet, like your own political identity and way of talking and things like that. Like, I get it. You know, when you're a young politician and you're starting out, and they're both relatively young, but when you get to the point where you're running for president, you got to be your own person. And they really are just doing an Obama impression. That's it. And that really gets under my skin. And, I, again, I wouldn't be critical on this point if they weren't running for president. Because I do think that when you're a young politician, when you're a young anything, you're allowed to, like, latch on to a persona and use that as your training wheels. You know what I mean? So, and Joe Rogan talks about this in comedy all the time, that a lot of people are like Doug Stanhope knockoffs, and that he says when he was younger, he kind of like semi-impersonated certain comedians. I don't know if it was Dave Attell or some other comedian, but it happens a lot in the comedy world where if you're a new comic and you just burst onto the scene and you're just getting started, it's a very natural process to like latch on to an established, established comic's persona and way of talking and rhythm and cadence because that's how you get started that's how you almost give yourself like false confidence to then eventually become your own person but that's just the point is that people grow out of that they grow out of that so you can start latching onto a persona but then when you're like three years deep four years deep you got it now you got to be your own person and now it's got to be clear that you're your own person you know, and it happens in everything. It happens in the comedy world. It happens in the political world. I'm sure we're going to see a hell of a lot of Trump knockoffs coming through on the right because Donald Trump is massively successful when he became president. So now you're going to see a lot of these people trying to be like extra politically incorrect and talk the way Trump does and stuff like that. I'll tell you from my own experience, being a political commentator, when I first started, I was probably half a knockoff of Bill Maher and half a knockoff of Jen Huger, who I'm happy today to call a friend. But that's what happens. When you start out at something, you're not – nobody is immediately really good or confident at what they're doing. So they latch on to, to a persona, 
and then they grow into their own person. And it happens, you know, I know there are people who do YouTube today who, in the same way that I kind of latched on to Bill Maher and Cenk Uger, they're latching on to me. And then they've grown and they've become their own people and they talk their own way. And, I mean, that's just, that's what it is. That's the way it works. But in, when you're running for president, fuck you. You cannot do an Obama impression and try to get it over on everybody. And you can tell that they're more, like with, with Buttigieg and, and Beto, it strikes me that they're more, um, they're just so narcissistic and self-aggrandizing that, like, the whole point of them running for president is, like, I want to have my name in the history books, and I want to be the guy. And that frustrates me more than anything, okay? Like, I think you could actually make – you could say all the candidates are like that or most of the candidates are like that, but I really don't think it is all of them, you know? I think Bernie is doing it because he actually wants to fix the country, and it's like it, it like, frustrates him and annoys him that things are so messed up. Um, I think Biden, uh, he is narcissistic, but at the same time, I think he views himself as like a status quo manager in a way. Like, you know, hey, I'm the guy who's the serious guy who knows how to make the trains run on time, so step aside. There's a little bit of that in him. But with Buttigieg and Beto, it's just like, me, the Goliath is me, yes. Like, that's the sense I get from them. Um, but also tied for the bottom is, uh, is Delaney, because the thing with Delaney is, zero humility and arrogantly wrong about everything like no humility at all like he just goes out there he's like medicare for all stupid yet really even though every other country's implemented one version or another of a single-payer system and they kick our ass in every relevant way it's still stupid i think it's stupid so i'm gonna say stupid oh was i taking money from the pharmaceutical industry and the for-profit health insurance uh, companies is that what i was doing no it's stupid it's wrong it's bad i'm here to gaslight everybody um and then who else I would have said Klobuchar at one point, but I've gotten over my seething Klobuchar hatred, or I should be clear, Cloud Boot Jar. Shout out to Mo, who said Cloud Boot Jar. <laughs> he didn't say Klobuchar. I like how we've now made that a thing where it's, like, it's interchangeable and people can just casually use Cloud Boot Jar and everybody knows who they're talking about. Um, Hickenlooper, again, in the past, I would have said he's one of the top, but I, at this point, I just kind of feel bad for Hickenlooper and Cloud Boot Jar. Because Hickenlooper's not like Delaney. Hickenlooper's kind of mild-mannered. And it's almost like we all know that Hickenlooper is aware that he's doing an embarrassing job right now. And he kind of feels bad about it. So that makes me kind of feel bad for him. (laughs) And and Cloud Boot Jar, same thing. It's like, I think she's aware. She has the self-perception to realize, like, oh, nobody likes me. And so as a result of that, there's a little bit of humility that's coming through this process. Whereas with Delaney, it's like, <laughs> if you don't like me, you're wrong because I'm wonderful. Anyway, Medicare for All really does suck, doesn't it? Isn't free college the stupidest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> he also happens to be, I think, the richest candidate, too, by the way. So, And the rest of them are just, you know, I don't like most of the rest of them, but um, they have things that are appealing that I can see other people really liking about them. Does that make sense? Like in the case of Kamala, I don't like Kamala, but I can see how other people like Kamala. You see what I mean? Um, Even with Hansy Uncle Joseph. I don't like Hansy Uncle Joseph, but I can see how there are some people who like Hansy Uncle Joseph. Um, 
Yeah. But the other ones, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm scrolling through to see if I forgot a bunch of like the thousand and one candidates. Biden definitely won by a mile and a half. Biden definitely won in terms of being the worst. Yeah. I have to say, I'm going pretty clearly with uh, Judge Beto tied for the worst, and even maybe Delaney thrown in there tied for the worst, although I might go just a three-way tie for dead last. That's what I think. Anyway, um, I want everybody to tell me in the comment section here what your answer to this question is. Um, Try to be not like me and just give me your one answer. Like, if you had to pick, if there's a gun to your head, the reason why I can't give you that one answer is because I did, I just saw this and I didn't give myself five, ten minutes to really think about it. Um, but I want you to give me your one answer of the, in your mind, the single worst Democratic primary candidate, okay? And then give me your reasoning why you think that's the case. I'm, I'll be really interested to actually see what you say on this. Okay. I forgot to mention Cory Booker, but that's okay. Because he's not, like, my my least favorite. Okay. All right, sorry. That was an impromptu segment, but I really felt like doing it. And I think it was kind of awesome, if you ask me. Okay. Let's go to Donald Trump and what he's been telling Democrats. <laughs> I, love, I love this clip so much. Credit to Vice News on this. So Donald Trump very clearly and uh, repeatedly told the various wonderful justice Democrats to leave America if they don't like America. Um, he doubled down on it. He tripled down on it. He said it in no uncertain terms, and he means it. Well, uh, Vice News here did a great job of you know going back to the to the old video here, and I want everybody to take a look at some of the things Trump himself has said. If you're not happy in the U.S., if you're complaining all the time, very simply, you can leave. You can leave right now. This country is the laughing stock of the world. We're not a brilliant country anymore. We're a foolish country. We're a dumb country. Douglas MacArthur, George Patton, spinning in their graves when they see the stupidity of our country. We're like the stupid country in so many different ways. How stupid are the people of Iowa? How stupid are the people of the country? The weak and very stupid country. Very, very stupid laws that we have. I love the Chinese people, but they laugh themselves. They can't believe how stupid the American leadership is. Mexico laughs at us. They can't believe how stupid we are. We're laughed at all over the world. We're the laughing stock of the world. We're not a respected country anymore. We don't win. Our country doesn't win. We're not great now. Look. The country is going to hell in a handbasket. We have a country that's going to hell. In the meantime, our country is going to hell. 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 Our military is going to hell. Our infrastructure is going to hell. Our country is going to hell. And then you wonder why. 
why we're going to hell. I can't. That's why we're going to hell. So what are the many reasons our country's going to hell? <laughs> you know, our country is going to hell. Our country's going to hell. And Frank doesn't like the word hell, but we're going to hell. Nothing works in our country. Nothing works. Our country doesn't work. Our infrastructure is terrible. Our roads, our bridges, our tunnels, our schools, our hospitals. There, uh, we're like a third. We're becoming like a third world country. We're becoming a third world country. Our country is becoming a third world country. We've become like a third world country. We are like, in many cases, a third world country. It's an embarrassment. This is like a third world country, folks. Honestly, it's like we're a third world country. I mean, our country is like a third world country. It's like we're in a third world country. We are like a third world country. We're 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 like a third world country. Third world. We're like in a third world country right now. We are literally like a third world country. We've become a third world country. We have become become a third world country, folks. We're now a third world country. Okay. Our airports are worse than third world. We're dying. This country is dying. Sadly, the American dream is dead. If you're not happy, you can leave. Come on, bro. If you don't love America as it is, then you can leave, all right? Well, you're going to criticize this country, or you're going to criticize it. You're going to criticize it? You can leave then. If you don't like it, leave. It's too easy. It's too easy. It's too easy. No, but here's the point, guys. He has no real criticism of our wonderful Justice Democrats. He has nothing to actually say. So what do they do? They come up with insane conspiracy theories like, I bet Ilhan Omar loves Al-Qaeda and married her brother. Am I right? No, just because you read it on a fucking Facebook meme doesn't mean it's true. Uh... Dude, they have nothing. They have nothing. Because these are people who are actually fighting for the American people, including Trump voters. It's a point I made just the other day. Ilhan Omar, her top issue appears to be ending the wars. And she's really standing up on that front. Now, Donald Trump, when he campaigned, half the time, he spoke about how we need to end the wars. Well, Ilhan Omar comes along and does exactly that. But Trump and the Trump voters hate her. Hmm, I wonder why that is. Donald Trump said repeatedly, the forgotten man and woman will never be forgotten again. I'm going to stand up and fight for you. What was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's first bill? It uh, tried to cap the interest rates that big financial institutions can charge you at 12%. It's basically banning usury, but it's also an effective ban on the loan shark industry, the payday loan industry, because they're massively predatory, and they basically you know, um, rip people off. They're price gouging everybody in sight. So... Alexander Ocasio-Cortez comes along and says, I will fight big financial institutions on behalf of the forgotten man and woman. And what does Trump do? Attacks them. So that's the trick. That's the point, guys. When you have nothing substantive to say, when you have nothing policy-related to say, when you can't actually disagree or go at what your opponent's real beliefs are, 
you straw man, you smear, you make ridiculous arguments like, if you don't love America, you can get out. Dude, literally no American um, president in our history has ever been this critical of America as Trump was. And let's be clear, that's not a problem. I would never earnestly tell people, you don't like America, you better get out. I would never say that because that's a stupid thing to say. That's one of the dumbest fucking things I've ever heard in my life. Obviously, even with people I don't agree with, I understand and I realize that when they're criticizing the system, it's because in their mind, they want to make it better. Again, this is even for people who I disagree with. Let's say somebody who's a hardcore you know, right-wing libertarian, and they're criticizing the hell out of our tax system, and they want a flat tax. Listen, I'm not, I'm not a dipshit. I understand that what their perspective is is, hey, a flat tax is a way to make the system better. Like, that's their belief. Now, I don't agree with them that a flat tax would actually make the system better, but I get that that's what they believe, and I'm not going to act like, since you criticize America, you don't even like America, man. I would never do that, because I'm not a silly person, and I actually have real criticisms to make. I actually have substantive criticisms to make. I can have an honest, good-faith discussion with people, even people I disagree with, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be reasonable. I'm going to be respectful. Forget respectful. Respectful is irrelevant. I'm going to be reasonable. Respect, I say I don't know about the respectful thing because I will make fun of people and I will do it in a vicious way. However, it will always be substantive. There will always be some substance at the core of what I'm talking about. Whereas Trump, nothing to say that's substantive against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and the rest of them. So this is, just, just so you know, buckle up, man, because these are the criticisms coming in the future. It's all going to be just, it will all insult your intelligence. I'm telling you right now, it will all insult your intelligence because they have nothing to say. Notice, the criticisms against Hillary Clinton, as a general rule, were a little less out there. You know, crooked Hillary. Well, yeah, you can call her crooked Hillary and it lands because it's kind of true, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Try to call, you know, whatever, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, crooked Alexandria. It's not going to work. She doesn't take corporate PAC money. She raises through small-dollar donations. So that doesn't land. So he gets more and more desperate and attacks more and more viciously. And the vicious attacks are so over the top and so silly that I, it's not going to work. This is not working. If you don't like America, you can get out. And then, listen, do not tell me this doesn't have at least something to do with their backgrounds, their ethnicity. Like, don't tell me, because I know that that's the case. Because, again, I, I disagree with these guys more than anybody. But when I criticize them, I've never once in my life heard, go back to your country. Because I'm a white dude. <laughs> in, in, the, in the minds of these kinds of characters, you know, okay, I don't agree with them, but they're American enough. But for somebody like Ilhan Omar, somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, brown woman, the idea is, well, yeah, that's not American enough to me. So go back to where you came from. Go back to where you came Fix those countries. Do that. Dude, they're American. They're fully American. And they criticize it because they want to make it better. In other words, they do exactly what you would always do when you were on the campaign trail. So stop. And, you know, the crazy thing is this, man. He's got such a fucking blockhead. He really has, like, cement where his brain should be 
that honestly, even if you showed Donald Trump this segment of me talking about this, I still don't think it would land. It's, I don't think it would land, which is amazing, because it's almost like he's walled off the part of his mind that allows him to admit he made a really terrible point. <laughs> like, he doesn't allow himself to entertain the idea that what he just said is a massive contradiction, or it's incredibly hypocritical, or it's just flat wrong. It, it, he doesn't allow himself to entertain that idea. So it's just, it's pathetic, really. It really is just beyond pathetic. Um, but now you know, even if you're somebody who's on the right, it's okay. It's okay. You can acknowledge that this is like the dumbest line of argument you've ever heard in your life. It's really stupid, and at its core, it is bigoted. Okay, we move on to America's dad. So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, did basically an impromptu town hall on the issue of Medicare for All um, in the streets of Burlington, Vermont. So... This wasn't like, it wasn't like this was planned and they were like, all right, I need everybody to come and line up, uh, you know, stand around me in a circle and we're going to talk about all this stuff. This just happened organically, which is kind of awesome. Take a look. Money that they need, we end up spending more 
Make this man president. Got to make him president. He really cares about this stuff. I mean, it's just so obvious. Everything he does is built around trying to get the policy issues he cares deeply about implemented. He wants to raise awareness on these issues. He wants to explain to people why it's the way to go. He wants to, uh, you know, make the numbers overwhelming in the general public in support of these ideas, and then he wants to get them done. He's just, Bernie, Bernie is like quite literally just wandering around, around the streets convincing people to support Medicare for All and talking to people about their health care horror stories. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's just, that's such a Bernie thing. It's like he's wandering the street. He's like, can I talk to you about Medicare for All? Are you okay with that? <laughs> It's beautiful. So, you know, what you'll notice there is most of the people already agree with him. So it's pretty, I mean, you could say, hey, the selection, it was like a self-selection because it's not like you have far right-wing people who are going to stop and, and talk to Bernie or not many of them that would do that. And maybe that's true, to be fair. Maybe that's true. But it is also true that the poll numbers show it's, it's an overwhelming majority of the American people that support Medicare for All. In some polls, it's up to 70%. It's a majority of independents. It's a majority of Democrats. In one poll, it's even a plurality of Republicans, more Republicans supporting Medicare for All than not supporting Medicare for All. 
Um, so it, it really is, it's one of those issues where it is such a political winner for us. And isn't it so infuriating that the media portrays it as the exact opposite? Like, oh, if the Democrats run on Medicare for all, they're sure done. What are you talking about? That is the opposite of what the empirical data says. It's like the only reason mainstream media hires the people they hire is because they know that those people will continue with the, you know, conventional wisdom nonsense, and they will ignore the data. And that's why they're in the positions that they're in. At least that's the sense I get. You know, that's why you put somebody like Wolf Blitzer on TV, because he's going to bore everybody to death, and he's going to say exactly what the corporations want him to say, exactly what the establishment wants him to say. And it's not nefarious. It's that he genuinely is that kind of a person. <laughs> Whatever, you know, the people around him are saying, he'll adopt it. And so it's like when he spoke to Rand Paul, and Rand Paul was like, we should stop arming Saudi Arabia because they're killing babies. And he was like, well, what about uh, the defense contractors and their profits? What? So this is, I mean, you know what strikes me about this? And you'll notice this too. So if you're talking to somebody who's on the right and they're against Medicare for all, what you'll notice is if they personally experience a situation like we have all the time in this country with our healthcare system, you can get them to understand the left-wing position and agree with the left-wing position. So it's like, yeah, everything was fine and dandy, and I loved our, our health care system until, you know, my dad got sick or my mom got sick or my friend got sick, and um, they couldn't afford the treatment, and they went bankrupt. Or they had trouble, they couldn't leave their job, or they, or they had to get a new job, or whatever it might be. Everybody kind of gets the Medicare for All position and why it's the best thing when they have a personal terrible experience with our healthcare system. And you could say that's anecdotal, but I would argue when you take, you know, a million different anecdotal stories, all of a sudden it's not just anecdotal, it's a trend and it's the objective reality of it. So in this country, medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. That doesn't happen in other developed nations. That's not a thing. Uh, that's huge in and of itself. Like you guys hear me say all the time, thirty to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. My dad was one of those people pretty much. You know, um, 30 to 40 million uninsured people skyrocketing co-pays and premiums and deductibles. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was just free at the point of service and is paid for with taxes and you still net save money because we eliminate the private taxes, which are way more expensive, and you get better care? So, again, you'll notice it, man. You really will. People will, even right-wingers who disagree with Medicare for All, once it this terrible system personally impacts them, they go, oh, yeah, well, I was wrong. I would love free health care for us, for me, for my family, for my mom, for my dad, for my friend, but I just didn't, I wasn't able to really conceptualize it when it was somebody else's problem. Now that it's my problem, yeah, I see the wisdom of it. So listen, it's never too late to change your mind. It's never too late to be correct about something. It's never too late to educate yourself further. Now, and I would implore anybody who doesn't already support Medicare for All to just you know, do some reading on it, do the research on it. Go look at the uh, Commonwealth Fund study, for example, which found that the U.S. ranks 11th out of 11 in the developed countries when it comes to the healthcare system. Go look at the methodology and see how rigorous these studies are that say that we're like the worst. 
Um, so, I, listen, I, it's almost like I just want to thank Bernie. Because this is a dude who really cares. He's running on the issues that matter. And um, it, it's inspiring. I have to say, it really is inspiring. How passionate he is to try to get everybody in this country health care, how hard he's working. The dude doesn't rest. And, and I know that, you know, I know some people who are in the campaign and they say, they're like, everybody around Bernie always tries to get under arrest. And he's like, no, I got, we got work to do. This is what this dude is all about. And this is why this dude needs to be president. Okay. Hannity and Carl Rove. Two loathsome people who I'd be fine with never talking about again. <laughs> but we are going to talk about them. So Sean Hannity and Carl Rove talked about Justice Democrats. Um, there's so much to this segment that I love. They pretend to be good faith arbiters of advice to help the left and to help Democrats, which is just, it's so dumb and it's so common. I've seen so many segments on this where like right-wingers or center right-wingers, you know, they act like, you know what the Democratic Party should do? Listen to me. Somebody who doesn't vote for them, isn't in their party and have no, you know, stake in the game. Listen to me. Don't listen to the Democratic base. You know, listen to us, the people who massively disagree with you. It's just so dumb. It's just so silly. Um, And I have to say, before I play this clip for you, I'm always amazed by how Karl Rove looks like a large, gelatinous baby. Doesn't he look like a baby? He just looks like a large baby. It's kind of crazy. There's a bunch, there's a few people like that. Carl Rove is definitely on the top of that list of uh, looking like a, a baby. There's a, there's a professional golfer by the name of Paul Laurie, L-A-W-R-I-E. And he always struck me as the same. Like, he looks like a large baby. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. But anyway, I digress. Um, here we go. Sean Hannity and Carl Rove giving advice as to how Democrats can win. Nazi Germany by Congresswoman Omar, uh, her virulent anti-Semitism, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez using the term in comparison to concentration camps. What does this mean between Wednesday and their love of Mueller and the new Green Deal that seems to have gripped the 2020 presidential candidates on the Democratic side? Well, first of all, uh, Sean, I want to put to bed the ugly rumor that's floating around Washington that the effort to elevate Omar Tlaib, uh, Presley, and AOC is the result of a secret plot concocted in the underground headquarters of the Republican National Committee and the conservative movement. Uh, this, is, this is simply not true. Not but, true. I mean, as, helpful, as helpful as they have been, uh, to uh, showing what the new Democratic Party has a chance to turn into. Uh, I, I want to say that this has not been, I've, I've examined it, I've looked deeply, I've read the secret minutes 
of the secret meetings of the Republican Illuminati, and I find no evidence whatsoever that these four people were elected to office with the help of conservatives and Republicans around the country. They're doing this all on their own. They're helping advance the conservative agenda uh, all on their own. They're helping enthuse and motivate conservatives all on their own. They're helping set up a situation where the president can be reelected in 2020 because they have tainted the Democratic Party as being as far left as they are. They're doing all right, it all on their own. This is their own idea. So you have some calling the country garbage. Then you have a, a, a guaranteed destruction of the American economy, the oil, gas, engines, and everything's free. Then you got this unprecedented anti-Semitism. Oh, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken people. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the Benjamins. All about the Benjamins. Um, and then, of course, the comparisons uh, to Nazi Germany that have been made, both Israel and the U.S. detention centers. So where does this, how does this impact 2020 presidential hopefuls? We're paying a lot of attention to these four, and it's tainting the Democratic Party. I mean, okay, there's so much to say about this, but just so we're clear, Sean Hannity and Karl Rove say what they just said about every Democratic politician. They never, ever, ever said, that Nancy Pelosi... Thank you, Nancy, for agreeing with us 50% of the time. You're really rather moderate, and we appreciate that. They never said that. Now, that would be true, because she does oftentimes give the Republicans what they want or meet them halfway or in some points agree with them, but they never said that. There was always, nah, far-left Nancy Pelosi. Uh. That was always what they said. When it came to Obama, when it came to you know, Biden, when it came to Bill Clinton, they still argue, even though it is a matter of historical record and a matter of fact, that Bill Clinton ran as a new Democrat and his strategy was called triangulation, which meant, hey, I'm above the fray, guys. Sometimes I agree with Democrats, sometimes I agree with Republicans. I'm a new kind of Democrat. I'm a centrist. That's what their philosophy is. But the entire time Bill Clinton was president, all Sean Hannity did, all Fox News did is beat up on him and act like he's far left. So they're a one-trick pony. They don't have actual objective analysis. What they're doing is playing for a team, the team being Republicans, and they're a tribal network. That's all they're doing. So, like, they're not even hitting a bare minimum level of intellectual honesty where they could even tell you what people are, where they could even say, hey, Clinton and Hillary, you know, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton – Barack Obama, these are new Democrats. These are centrists, and we've got to call it what it is. We've got to give you the facts before we give you our take on it. They never did that. They have to let all the Democrats ever far left, and they're helping Republicans. Your analysis is so dumb. It's just it's so mind-numbingly stupid. Um, but having said that, I like what um, Adam, Adam Johnson and Nima Shirazi of what's their uh, citations needed is the name of their podcast. And they have an episode, I think it's called Inexplicable Republican Best Friend. And that's what this is right here. So what this is, and you see it all over the media, is either people who are self-described centrists or you know, self-described conservatives or registered Republicans. And what they do is they come out there and they say, oh, I see the direction that this Democratic Party is going, and let me tell you, the Democrats should agree more with me, a conservative Republican. 
you'll notice it never works the other way. I'm never invited onto a cable news show as a lefty to explain how the Republican Party needs to, you know, um, reform itself. They never say, hey, Kyle, what do you think the Republican Party should do? And I go out there and say, well, you know, I, I will say if they embrace Medicare for all and free college and a living wage, that's the direction that they should all obviously go in. Because that on its face is absurd. Everybody would go, okay, but you're on the left. That's the right-wing party. So why are you trying to control it? Why don't you take action more in the party that philosophically aligns with you more, or at least should right now? But it always works in the other direction. I've seen so many segments. Joe Scarborough used to be a Republican, and all day and night he talks about how this is what the Democrats should do to win. You're a Republican, bro. And just recently he said, oh, forgive me for ever being a Republican. So he's changing. But he's obviously and very clearly a centrist. So, yes, people who are former Republicans or current Republicans or conservatives or centrists, by definition, they're going to try to drag the Democratic Party in that direction. That doesn't mean that's what actually sells, which gets to the main point. Look at their arguments here. So they, don't, they can never give you a comprehensive analysis. Why? Because on the comprehensive analysis, they're dead wrong. So, in other words, um, raising the minimum wage to a living wage. You know what the polls say about how many Americans want to raise the minimum wage, 80% of the American people want to raise the minimum wage. Okay, Raising taxes on the rich, 58% of the American people want to do that. Free college, 58% of the American people want to do that. Legalizing marijuana, some polls over 60% of the American people want to do that. Medicare for all, at least in one poll, 70% of the American people want to do that. In one poll, even a plurality of Republicans want to do that. So when you do a comprehensive analysis and you go through the issues, it's crystal clear. The American people, but also the Democratic Party, They need to go left to win. They need to be more populist, more anti-corruption, and represent the people by making us a thriving social democracy. Sean Hannity couldn't bring up any issues. The only issue he brought up is Green New Deal, and he didn't tell you any numbers on that, because even with the Green New Deal, it pulls over 50%. So what does he say? The squad. These justice Democrats, man, they're, it's a virulent anti-Semitism. That's Ilhan Omar is a virulent anti-Semite. What happened? I thought you guys on the right always cried and bitched and moaned about what the false accusations of bigotry that come from the left. When they don't have an argument, all they do is call people bigots and racists and just call them names, bad names. And then what do you do? Ilhan Omar, virulent anti-Semite. Anti-Semite. They even brought up the all about the Benjamins thing, because that's all they got. It's all, yeah, she said it's all about the Benjamins in relation to APAC, the Israel lobbying group, giving American politicians money to try to get them to do their bidding. Right, how's that anti-Semitic? No, that's factually true. Saudi Arabia does the same thing. That's right, that's right. It's called lobbying. It's called money in politics, corrupting it. And you guys are playing dumb on purpose. But all... The Green New Deal, bad. They're virulent anti-Semites. They, I like how he said they called the country garbage. Did you see your boy Donald Trump when he was campaigning and he repeatedly said, you know, we're a third world country, we're doing terrible in this country, this country's so stupid, this country's so wrong. Weird how you didn't take Trump saying very similar things and go, well, he hates America and he should leave. But you do it with the Justice Democrats. I wonder why. And then finally, the, um, my two favorites. Because it shows you he's such a rank propagandist, Sean Hannity. He goes, what, they want to do the destruction of the U.S. economy. What? Yeah, they want to destroy the U.S. economy. You're going to have to explain that one more. Well, with oil and gas and, you know, so what he's talking about is 
moving to a, an economy that's green and renewable technology. And he says that's the destruction of the American economy. I mean, you would hear Sean Hannity back when, you know, FDR was doing the Green New Deal, if he was around back then, he'd be like, ha, ah, FDR wants to destroy this economy by doing a massive project to try to fix it and improve it and give people jobs? That makes no sense, bro. Obviously, the idea is a Green New Deal is in part like a new New Deal. You give, create hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs that are good-paying jobs, and we rebuild our infrastructure. His explanation of that, his uh, you know, description is they want to destroy the U.S. economy because eventually we will you know, get off of oil and gas. There's, there's not an intellectually honest bone in Sean Hannity's body. And then finally he goes with it, everything's free. The smug, absurd, low IQ dismissal he has for basic social democratic policies like free college, which many developed nations do, or free health care, like every developed country does, free at the point of service. The smug dismissal, it's free stuff. It's free stuff. That's what it is, free stuff. Free stuff. That's his description of it. I got to be honest with you guys, I don't know how anybody takes Sean Hannity or Carl Rove seriously. I mean, there are, there are people, usually the average age is like 78 or something like that, and they're at nursing homes watching Sean Hannity and getting all riled up, but it really is amazing to me that he has any audience whatsoever, because he is such a rank propagandist, he is so incredibly biased, he doesn't know how to form a coherent argument, all he does is smear, 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 and uh, here, I'll sum up his show for you, you ready? Left wing bad, right wing good. Mm, that's what I think. Democrat bad, Republicans good. <laughs> that's all he's got. That. So hey, if that tickles your fancy, by all means, keep watching. Okay, um, let's take a final break when we come back. I got Rudy Giuliani, I got Tucker Carlson, and then um, a really interesting and important story on insulin refugees. We have Canadian uh, insulin refugees, Americans going to Canada, and now we have Americans going to Mexico for insulin. And then uh, the single worst economist in human history went on Fox Business and made an ass of himself. And yet again, we have Donald Trump being mega cucked by radical Islam. So stay right there. We'll have all that and more.
I'm eating pizza. <laughs> you guys thought it was just a regular break. It's a pizza break, bitch. I'm eating one of those uh, white slices. This pizza is very white. This pizza is damn near in the clan. I haven't had white pizza in years. And this particular slice is actually better than uh, the last time I had white pizza. Better than I remember. I was never a big white pizza guy. I was more of a uh, Sicilian guy. Sicilian pizza. That's my favorite. But this white pizza is uh, really good. It's hitting the spot. I'm just taking my last few bites. And then we're going to make fun of Rudy Giuliani, who's trying to prep us for another war. This last block of stories is actually maybe the best block in the show. You got a lot of substantive stuff, and then you also got um, a lot of just, like, interesting stuff, like Tucker Carlson and his boy doing the fake populism game and, and doing it really well. I can't wait to bust up that story. Wow. You know what? Let me save my next bite for uh, for when this video is playing. That works. Here, let me set this up for you. So Rudy Giuliani basically fumbled his way through his anti-Iranian propaganda on Sean Hannity's show last night. It's pretty, ooh, I got the wrong guys over my shoulder here. Let me change that for you. Okay, let me restart that. <clears throat> so Rudy Giuliani fumbled his way through anti-Iranian propaganda on Sean Hannity's show uh, this week. He's like half asleep here. His eyes are like half closed. And um, <clears throat> this is like the Iraq war script all over again. So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. Live breaking news, special edition Hannity, Iranian aggression across the globe. Today, the president blamed the escalating tensions in Iran, in part on the outrageous deal that Biden Obama made with the rogue state, probably the dumbest foreign policy decision in the history of mankind. Take a look. Huh. We're going to be speaking with the UK, and this only goes to show what I'm saying about Iran. Trouble. Nothing but trouble. And remember this, the agreement, the ridiculous agreement made by President Obama expires in a very short period of time. It was a short-term agreement. That was a ridiculous agreement. And it goes to show you I was right about Iran. And let's see what happens. Also today, the president confirmed Senator Rand Paul will be assisting in negotiations with Iran. I don't know if I agree with Rand Paul on this one. It was reaction to this dangerous unfolding situation. President Trump's attorney, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Um, I want to say this delicately because I have sources that I know are sources you know well. And I know you have been told what I have been told. We know exactly which nuclear sites are the most dangerous, and we know the plans have been long drawn up to take them out. 
and I have been told, and I think you've been told, Mr. Mayor, and feel free to go as far as you want to go with this, that it is beyond doable, and it will happen if this continues. Well, I, I uh, have the benefit of having been in Albania for four days at a conference in which we had 50 nations represented, significant uh, numbers of our military, including several general officers, a four-star general, two three-star, two four-star generals. And uh, I think the colonel was um, saying, could we effectively take them out 100%? And maybe we would need nuclear weapons for that. But the point is, uh, we could set them back five or ten years. I'd be happy with that. If we could make it impossible for them to develop nuclear weapons in the next five to ten years, I'm convinced there'll be regime change there. I mean, it could happen this year or next year. Now, remember, Iran regime has been in power for 40 years. They have committed hundreds of thousands of crimes against humanity, slaughtering people in the street. I have seen pictures of 120,000 of those people. I have a book at home that has 20,000 of them all listed and, uh, and, 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 and completely author author authoritative. I also can tell you that in 1988, they killed 30,000 people in two months. And since Rouhani has been in office, they've killed almost twice as many people as Ahmadinejad did. So this man is another murderer, a mass murderer. These people they commit crimes against this. humanity, and Europe gives them money. And That's we gave them over a billion dollars. That billion dollars went to kill people. And Obama and Biden should be ashamed of themselves for doing that. Oh, pipe down, Uncle Fester. Listen, you want to talk about rogue regimes killing people that we support? Saudi Arabia. We give them multi-billion dollar weapons deals. They turn around and, and give those weapons to jihadist rebels on the ground in Syria and Yemen. So where in a roundabout way, we're supporting jihadists, you know, the people who attacked us on 9-11, Mr. 9-11 mayor. Also, Saudi Arabia is doing a genocide in Yemen, killing women, killing children, blockading the country, not allowing in food, not allowing in medicine. There's famine. There's a cholera outbreak. People are dying left and right. They're bombing hospitals and open-air markets. It is a flat-out genocide that we are flat-out supporting. He has nothing to say about that. In fact, he supports that. But he fear-mongers about Iran and about them killing people. Are you kidding me? You want to tally up the body count, Iran versus Saudi Arabia? You don't want to play that game, do you? And also, by the way, he's lying. Obama and Kerry gave them a billion dollars. No, Rudy. They gave them back their own money that we had stolen from them. And in return for them getting back their own money, we got to go in there and the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, got to regulate the shit out of the nuclear facilities. You understand that? that it's a guarantee they weren't going to create a nuclear weapon, and they weren't creating a nuclear weapon, and the IAEA came back over a dozen times and said they're following the agreement to the letter, so I don't know, there's no problem here. So, in other words, we did the exact thing that Rudy Giuliani is saying, like, well, we need to make sure they don't get a weapon. That's exactly what the fucking point of the deal was, dipshit. And I, they never give you the context. They never say, oh, we gave them back their own money that we stole from them. 
They always say, yeah, Obama gave him a billion dollars for no reason ever. It's U.S. taxpayer money, even though it's not. But it's always, it's, it's so infuriating to see a guy like Rudy Giuliani act like he cares. Iran is killing people! We massacred people in Iraq. We massacred people in Afghanistan. We're still doing it right now. We're still killing innocent civilians. Trump's first military action as president approved a raid that killed a, like a young six-year-old girl. But, oh, I know, your heart bleeds for all the victims of the Iranian government. You just want to do regime change, man, and that's what it boils down to. He was talking about crimes against humanity. We're the country that was... the fuck is going on back here? I don't know what happened there. Whoa. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of a technical issue at the moment. The graphic behind me randomly started spazzing. But we are fixing it. Yeah, Rudy Giuliani talking about crimes against humanity is rich because, of course, this is the same guy who backed the Bush administration. The Bush administration did countless crimes against humanity, including torture and illegal offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. Um, I like how he said, maybe we need nuclear weapons to take out their nuclear facilities. Go back and watch it again, because I had to watch it two or three times before it hit me that he really said that. He said, maybe we need to use nuclear weapons. He's talking about nuking Iran and nuking Iran's nuclear facilities. Casually, just casually floating this idea on Fox News. Just casually like, yeah, what do you mean? It's nuking another country that didn't attack us. I don't, why is that a problem? Is there a problem here? Um... And I got chills when Hannity said, oh, there's a plan, and the plan is, quote, doable, and it will happen if this continues. So he's saying that we have plans to strike Iran, and that will happen if, uh, you know, Iran keeps doing what they're doing. Now, what they don't tell you, of course, is that the Iranian, everything Iran has done is tit for tat. They're acting defensively. But, of course, in U.S. media, it's always going to be framed as if Iran is irrationally on the offense. When every, notice, everything that happens, it's not, like it's, it's not like Iran is attacking us in the Gulf of Mexico. No, we're over there. We're over there. And then when they respond, we're like, ah, how could you? How could you? What are you talking about? You're there. You're in their airspace or just outside their airspace or fucking with them and trying to force their oil exports to zero, which is an attempt to collapse the economy, which is economic warfare, by the way. We are sanctioning even medicine going into Iran. Medicine. And Rudy Giuliani supports that. Well, that's, that kills people, man. We're doing economic warfare on them, and then when they respond, we play the victim. It's really disingenuous. Um, and I got a nice little chuckle when, uh, when Sean Hannity said, the Iran deal was the worst foreign policy decision, the dumbest foreign policy decision of all time. Are you joking? 
a deal that it has been proven was working for its intended goal that created peace and stability. That's the worst foreign policy decision of all time. This is a guy who supported the Iraq war. Sean Hannity supported the Iraq war. That's the worst foreign policy decision of all time. What in the... Again, I'll say it again. I just said it before, but I'll say it again. I don't know how anybody watches this crap. I don't know how anybody takes these guys seriously. They're a joke. They're a joke. So, uh, Grandpa Giuliani, please go back to sleep. All right, Tucker Carlson. We've been beating up on Tucker quite a bit recently, but it is 100% earned. So this next story is, um, this is really important, and I'm really happy that we're covering this. So Tucker Carlson and uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's the senator from Missouri, he's a Republican, they really perfected the whole fake populist tap dance here. They're like little kabuki theater where they pretend to be anti-elitist. Now, again, I got to ask you, watch the whole thing and then hang in there because I guarantee you there, there are some mind-blowing facts that I'm going to give you after you watch this. That really just demonstrates exactly what we're talking about here. That really demonstrates just how fraudulent this is. Now, I'll be the first to say up front, the rhetoric that they're using from a political perspective, is brilliant because Tucker is trying to pave this new path for a conservatism of the future, more of a paleo-conservatism, so they say they're against the stupid wars, and you can give him credit for that. That's good. It's great that he's against the stupid wars. But outside of that, the policies are exactly like the old-school neocons, you know, whatever it might be, the deregulation of Wall Street, the tax cuts for the rich. Now, again, I'm going to prove this in just a second, so relax if you don't agree with the um, analysis to this point. But this is a really, it's a really intelligent marketing approach to try to repackage and rebrand some old-school conservative beliefs and now repackage it and, you know, try to act like you're the anti-corruption one, you're the populist one, you're the one that's fighting for the working people. And it really is... Um, a message that lands, because that old school, you know, when you think of like the Bill O'Reilly type commentary, that's dead and gone. I mean, he's still doing his thing on the internet, but that, like that flavor, that version of conservatism, which kind of wore on its sleeve notions of loving free trade and notions of thinking that the guys in suits on Wall Street are actually really intelligent, that's dead and gone. This new fake populist brand of conservatism is much more poignant and lands much more with the younger generation. So let's watch, and then I'll give you some amazing information afterwards. Last week, Senator Josh Hawley spoke to the National Conservatism Conference in Washington. He delivered a great speech, legitimately smart and interesting. It's online. If you'd like to watch it, it's worth the time. So naturally, because the speech was effective, the left is coming out of the woodwork to accuse Hawley of crime think. They're now saying he's an anti-Semite. Anti-Semite? Why? Well, because during his speech, Hawley accurately described America's elites as being globalist cosmopolitans with no real attachment to America, because they are. 
Everyone knows that. Nobody thinks Hawley's an anti-Semite. If they did, they probably would have been upset a few years ago when President Obama said this. Now, it should be noted that this new international elite, the professional class that supports them, differs in important respects from the ruling aristocracies of old. A decent percentage consider themselves liberal in their politics, modern and cosmopolitan in their outlook. It was true when Obama said it. It was true when Senator Hawley said it. Senator Hawley joins us tonight. Senator, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so, for did we misdescribe that? You're being called an anti-Semite for describing many of our elites as not attached to the United States. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, what I've learned, Tucker, is that when it comes to liberals, there's only one thing that they love more than being elitist, and that's accusing everybody else of being bigots. In order to shut down speech, in order to, to devalue the views of the American people, they say, oh, you're a bigot, you're a racist, because they don't want to admit what they have done. They don't want to admit what their policies have done, shipping jobs overseas, hurting working families, keeping wages flat for decades. That's their legacy, and it's time that they owned it. So what you're saying is that they use cries of bigotry as a diversion to keep you occupied on the defensive so you won't notice how badly they've mismanaged the country. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is strange, as you point out, that when Barack Obama makes the same point, that an international yes. elite, that's his word, cosmopolitan in their outlook, uh, who are increasingly disconnected, he goes on that same speech to say this new elite is disconnected from national feeling and increasingly disconnected from the workers who actually uh, make the products that they depend on, who actually built this country. I mean, that's precisely what I said. But uh, the left can't take that. They can't be put on the spot, and they don't want to be called out as elitist that they truly are, and they don't want to be put on the spot for their failed policies that have hurt this country, that have hurt the workers of this country, and they don't have anything to offer. And so all we get is, that, well, you're a bigot, you're a racist, as they try to distract from their failures. What's so interesting is the left is suddenly in the position of defending the prerogatives of the ruling class. I mean, here you are, a Republican, taking up for the interests of people who, you know, make 40 grand a year. And yeah, liberals are saying... You know, th those people deserve no attention and stop criticizing George Soros because <laughs> he can't be criticized. Is that weird, do you think? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's totally weird. But listen, I mean, the liberals are increasingly the party of the elites. I mean, they are the party of yeah. the ruling class. And that's the point, and that's what they don't want to admit. They are the ruling class, and they have been for decades. They control the commanding heights in this country, the media, uh, the big multinational corporations, our universities. I mean, they have effectively run the country, the liberals have, for decades now. And their consensus has given us what we have today. I mean, they're the ones who are responsible for jobs offshoring. They're the ones who are responsible for wages flat, for the, the plight and struggle of working Americans. You know, working Americans, ordinary Americans, in places like where I grew up in rural Missouri, they just want somebody to speak for them and to be constantly told that they're bigots and they're racists and their lives don't matter and their views, they're tired of that. Now, I have no idea if Josh Hawley is an anti-Semite. That was, I guess, the, the spark for this conversation. Um, and I don't even know who's accusing him of being an anti-Semite. To me, that's all irrelevant. Put that all aside. You heard the rhetoric there. The rhetoric is crystal clear. The rhetoric is anti-corruption. The rhetoric is populist. The rhetoric is like, oh, yeah, I'm all about the workers, bro. Let me tell you something about Josh Hawley. Look at this. Josh Hawley graduated from Stanford, has a law degree from Yale, his dad was a banker, 
actually I think the president of a bank, and he supports right to work. Tucker Carlson married into the fro- a frozen TV dinner empire. And so his wife is massively wealthy. He's massively wealthy. Now listen, I, if Josh Hawley or if Tucker Carlson said, okay, whatever, my background is my background, this is who I am, but, hey, I support policies X, Y, and Z. I support raising the minimum wage to a living wage. I support unionization. You know, I support Medicare for all. I support free college. I support a variety of anti-outsourcing bills. I'm against NAFTA. I'm against TPP. I'm for, um, you know, Bernie Sanders' proposal to cut off all government contracts to companies that outsource. If they were crystal clear and they came out and said, here are the policies I'm for, I wouldn't be doing this segment where I go after them. Because very simply, you could be like FDR was considered, because he was from a wealthy background, but you could be a traitor to your class. And I'd support you. Totally fine. I'd support you. But let me explain to you one more time. Josh Hawley graduated from Stanford, has a law degree from Yale. His dad was a banker. Again, I could overlook all that until, and he supports right to work. In other words, he's out there like, me, bro? (laughs) I'm just out here looking out for working people, you know? All these elitist lefties who, you know, they're the problem in this country. They're the establishment in this country. Their policies have failed. I'm for working people. He supports right to work, right to work, which really, in reality, just so everybody knows, is right to work for less. It's an anti-union piece of legislation and approach um, that makes it so that, and studies have found this, people in right to work state make I think about $2,000 or $3,000 less on average per year because they're anti-union. So a guy who's pretending to be all for the working class and his politics and his policies are massively anti-union, which means they're anti-worker. This is what I mean, guys. You have to look past the rhetoric. You have to look past the surface-level tap dance that they're doing and the kabuki theater that they're doing. Because I'm the one that's admitting up front, hey, if all that stuff was true, the rhetoric that they're talking about, that's convincing. People are going to watch that and go, yeah, okay, cool. Tucker Carlson's not all that bad. Josh Hawley isn't all that bad. Look at them. They're arguing for working people. They're arguing for regular people. They're against the elite. What do you mean? That's great. That's wonderful. But it's fake. It's fake populism. It's like Donald Trump acting like the forgotten man and woman will never be forgotten again. And then he does a tax bill where... He hands the keys to the kingdom over to the corporations and over to the rich. He massively cuts the estate tax. Is that populist? Is that looking out for working people? He massively cuts corporate taxes when they're already paying a historically low percentage of the tax burden. Is that populist? Is that looking out for regular people? Every tax cut in his bill for working people is temporary. It's got a sunset provision on it. All the tax cuts for the rich, permanent. They're not real populists. Real populists are crystal clear. They oppose NAFTA. They oppose TPP. They don't renegotiate NAFTA to basically make it almost exactly like NAFTA, like Trump did. They support Bernie Sanders' bill to not give any federal government contracts to, um, to companies that outsource. They support Buy America in terms of an executive order. Trump did not do that executive order. He could have done it, but he didn't do it. Instead, he did a symbolic 
Buy America Wheat, which is nothing but symbolism. He could have signed an executive order that says the federal government only buys products made in America, full stop. But no, the way it works now is we buy from us and all of our allies. He didn't change that. He could have changed that. He didn't change that. Did Tucker Carlson tell you about this? He didn't tell you about this, did he? Did Tucker Carlson tell you about the 93,000 um, jobs that were outsourced under the Trump administration? As Trump pretends to be the anti-outsourcing president, 93,000 fucking jobs are outsourced. Did Tucker Carlson tell you about that? He didn't tell you about that. Is, is Tucker Carlson praising the Democrats for the $15 minimum wage bill that they just passed through the House? Is Josh Hawley in agreement with the Democrats? These guys are frauds, man. Now, again, I told you a thousand times, I'll tell you a thousand more. This stuff is convincing. This stuff is way more intelligent because it's marketing that works. It's going to get a bigger following because you're acting, you're saying, hey, I'm fighting for regular people. So they know what they're doing. This is like grade A propaganda. But the fact of the matter is, and the reality is, all of, I don't care about your rhetoric. I don't give a shit about your rhetoric. I don't care what you say. I care about what you do. I care about what bills you actually support. I care about the policies. And the fact of the matter is, Josh Hawley, you supporting right to work, you supporting a right-wing economic approach, and then pretending to be for working people. Get the fuck out of here, man. You are a liar. You're a liar. That's what you are. And then the uh, final point I'll make is this. He said, well, you know, the left is always calling people bigots and racists to distract failures of their policies. Well, hold on. If you're being honest, you will admit that the failures in Washington, D.C. have largely been bipartisan. I would argue a little bit more of the blame is on the right. Like, it was George W. Bush who launched the Iraq War and started torture and all that stuff. But yeah, largely bipartisan. He's not accepting and, and not saying the Republicans are to blame at all for the problems, and he's blaming liberals for all the outsourcing policies. Republicans across the board supported those outsourcing policies, fella. I mean, the Democrats did too. It was Bill Clinton who signed NAFTA. But Republicans across the board supported those outsourcing policies. So when you just blame liberals, as you say, you're wrong. That's not the way it unfolded. That's not the way it worked. And to the idea that, oh, they just call us names to distract from policy. Has, has Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, any of the other actual lefties, have we misspoken? Did, you, did we stutter when we called for Medicare for All every eight seconds? When we called for free college, when we called for a living wage, oh, you're just distracting and calling people bigots. So you don't have to talk about policy. All we talk about is policy. And if you want to talk about name-calling and distractions, I've heard nothing but wall-to-wall, uh, Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite. AOC is an anti-Semite. Rashida Tlaib is an anti-Semite. How, how about that name-calling? How about when you guys don't form an argument, but all you say is, <laughs> you're socialists and communists, and y'all support Venezuela. You're guilty of the thing you're accusing the left of being guilty of. It's a convincing tap dance. It's a fake populist tap dance. It's an anti-corruption tap tap dance. But it is completer, completer, complete and utter horseshit.
So Vice News did a great report on insulin refugees from the United States. Take a look at where they're going and what's happening. In 2007, the list price of five pens of Humalog, a common brand of insulin, was $147. By 2013, it had doubled in price to $295. And by 2017, it had almost doubled again. Before an insured diabetic meets their deductible, they would pay $530. There's another option. You can join the estimated 1 million American medical tourists who flock to Mexico every year for cheaper prescription drugs. Lauren does this regularly. Louise has never been. And I was interested in purchasing insulin too. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes soon after my 28th birthday. Shall we go uh, get some insulin? Let's go to Mexico. Bunch of these big ones. It's basically advertised for Americans. Yeah, yeah. And the, the websites are in English, and they say, "Come, we'll take your money. Yes. Your healthcare system's terrible. Yeah. And we're gonna go find those guys. Yeah, yeah. So, Lauren, we're sure all of the insulin is actually insulin. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of people ask, well, "What's it like buying insulin from another country?" But I know this is like gonna come as a real shock to everyone, but people in Mexico have diabetes, too, <laughs> and also need insulin. The formulas are the same. They're made by the same drug manufacturers. It's just cheaper. So, here. Okay. We do, right? Okay. What do you need? Do you want to? So, yeah, okay. I'll need, do you have vials, hemolog vials, or just the pens? We have the pens. Okay. All right, so it comes one in a box, and it tells, I want the letter. $17. For one pen. For one pen. I can get a pen of this for $17? $17. <laughs> so, what, do you know of any apartments in Tijuana that I can rent? Said Nova Love. Right now, I'm paying $37. You pay $37 for the Nova Love. Okay. It's a copay. So, this is cheaper than your copay. So, this is $850 to $900 worth of insulin. Yeah, that's right. And you're paying how much? One, $115. $115. $115. So a five-minute walk mm -hmm. over the border saves you yeah. 800 and some odd dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Rodrigo is an American citizen who moved to Mexico to run this pharmacy with his family. What percentage of people that come in here are American? Probably the majority. It's ridiculous how many people like on a Monday we'll get a good 900 tickets. So oh, wow. that will come through. I mean, they're too much. We couldn't handle it. The space was too small. That's why we had to open up over here. So because of the crisis in American healthcare, you're expanding. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it. Well, it's great for you. Yeah, it is. That's why it's so huge. The uh, the medical tourism here. Because you know you have the border crossings. They opened the a lane specifically for medical tourism. Insulin is cheap in Mexico and Canada because those governments negotiate market access and prices without middlemen. But in the U.S., access to markets are controlled by pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, who manage drug benefits for insurance companies and employers. The PBM will allow drug companies access to their customers for a price. So drug companies offer PBMs bulk rebates on the price of insulin to sweeten the deal. 
But instead of these negotiations driving prices down, PBMs and pharmaceutical companies end up wildly inflating insulin list prices. Because higher prices mean bigger profits for the PBMs and insurance companies. Someone ends up pocketing the cash rebates. But a lack of transparency in the system means it's nearly impossible to track down where those savings end up. And it's patients, the one party who has no negotiating power, that ends up paying for this scheme. Shame on our government. Shame on our government. Shame on all of them. Shame on Bill Clinton. Shame on George W. Bush. Shame on Barack Obama. Shame on Donald Trump. Shame on the House of Representatives. Shame on the Senate. This can be fixed. This can be fixed relatively quickly and in a very easy way. But they won't do it. You want to know why they won't do it? They're bought by Big Pharma. The politicians ain't working for you. The politicians ain't working for me. They're working for the big pharma companies in the same way they're working for Wall Street, in the same way they're working for the military-industrial complex. Now, there was a time where you would say that, and you'd be accused of being a conspiracy theorist, and you'd be accused of, you know, being a crazy outsider. Uh, But is that evidence compelling enough for you? That people are insulin refugees from the United States who take caravans to Canada to get cheaper insulin and also now go to Mexico for cheaper insulin? Does that sound like a functioning healthcare system for you? Is that the way it should work? Is this unavoidable? Is this like, I love the people who are so dumb that they just assume like, well, if it works this way now, it obviously is like written in the laws of nature that it has to work like this. Or it's only like this because of massive corruption or that. And we can fix it if we just have the political will to fix it. And if the government just listened to the people, as if, like, regular people are sitting around like, you know, I would really love to be price gouged and fucking robbed in order to get my life-saving medication. No, everybody's in favor of fixing it. The people are in favor of fixing it. The government is not in favor of fixing it because, again, they're bought. Shame on them. We need Medicare for all, and we need Medicare for all right now. I mean, again, it's just so amazing that all you hear is like, oh, you got... People trying to come to the United States of America, land of opportunity and stuff. Caravans going to Canada, caravans going to Mexico to get cheaper medication because we are so royally screwed over in this country. This is my favorite story of the day. I'm not going to lie to y'all. Favorite story of the day. Favorite story. So Art Laffer is the single worst economist in human history. We just recently spoke about him and how his grand theory is wrong. What's so frustrating and embarrassing is that this guy has actually set decades of economic policy in the United States of America. His terrible ideas have infected this country like a virus. But as you're about to see, this guy in reality is the doofus of all doofuses. 
and he's got no clue what he's talking about in any way, shape, or form. And the only reason he really is considered such an intellectual and a brilliant economist is because he tells the rich and because he tells corporations exactly what they want to hear. So as you're watching this, remember, this is the guy who impacted decades of economic policy in the United States. As you're watching this, keep that in mind. But take a look at the claim he makes about free college. You gotta earn it. You gotta pave your road. You gotta earn it. No, you'd be like, 
okay, we're gonna that one we're gonna go ahead and put in the category of the commons, what's called the commons. So a public good. This is something that's just a default. It's given everybody. We have, you know, whatever public transportation. We have roads. It's, if, you, if your house is on fire, you, you got to earn the right to have it put out. you got to earn it. People don't want to, to just have the fire put out. They want to earn it. That's what they want to do. No, we all go, well, in a civilized society, in a functioning society, certain things are off the table. Every other developed society has said, well, health care is one of those things that's off the table. You're not going to go bankrupt from health care. You're not going to be able to not afford your health care. You're not going to struggle in that sense. We got that. That's taken care of. That's, taken, that's on the top of the list of stuff that tax money should go towards. Done. Over. Got it. Here in the U.S., we decided no. But with healthcare, he's arguing that, like, as if people are sitting around going, you know, boy, I really would hate having uh, school paid for. Hey, Arch, just so you know, we have that in the United States of America up through high school. You can go to public high school. And it's paid for via taxes, and you can just go. You can just go. Now, nobody says, ah. You know, this is really messed up. This should definitely be in the private sector, and I should have to pay out of pocket, and I should have to pay more for this. That's what I should do. So it doesn't matter how much money your parents make. You get to go to school. But we just arbitrarily draw the line at high school, and then in one of the most fucked up twists ever, people say, oh, in order to get a real job, you got to go to college. you got to go to higher education. Well, what the fuck? It was provided for me up through high school, not in college. College wasn't provided for me, at least not in any serious way. So what the hell? That's messed up. But he acts like it's so, he's so smug. At, what do you, that's how it works now, so that's how it should work. And I think the kids like it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have wanted to have it paid for for me. I wouldn't like to have it covered with taxes. I would. I would. Have, I love the 1.6 trillion dollars in student loan debt. I know a lot of people student loan debt. I've never met a single one who's like, I. I, I got. I got to earn it. I gotta earn it, so yeah. Let me go get a job I don't want to get, and and try desperately to pay it off, and not be able to, and then I'm also struggling to make my car payment, and I can't pay the rent. <laughs> Art Laffer is a rich asshole who's incredibly comfortable. Who I'm very comfortable in saying is wrong about everything. Wrong about everything. Well, you just saw that. Wrong about everything. So this is the guy who controlled fiscal policy in the U.S. for decades. Still to this day, he's impacting this administration. Trump gave him a medal. And he's silly enough to – he makes Stuart Varney look intelligent. I'm not sure we've ever covered a segment where Stuart Varney was correct. But he was like, what do you mean? Of course, like, free college is going to sell because people don't want to, like, not be able to afford school to try to improve their lives. I mean, think about that, man. All people are trying to do when they go to school is improve their lives and have a better chance at having a future. Why on earth would we not say, hey, that's one of those things that's off the table? Especially when there are so many developed countries that have come to that conclusion and they're working wonderfully. It's just so... He's such an ideologue, he couldn't even admit the bare minimum obvious. The bare minimum obvious is, of course, people don't want to have to you know, pay an arm and a leg to go to college to give themselves a chance at success. Of course, couldn't do it. Yeah, I, yeah it's good. It's good. It's good. I love, be, I love being in debt. I love being in uh, school debt. I love, uh, I love medical debt, too. I love being on the verge of bankruptcy from that. I, I think it's great. I think it's great. Anyway, let me control economic policy in the U.S. some more. Does another president have a medal they'd like to give me for being such a genius? I am Art Laffer, the brain genius. Okay. 
And on that note, y'all, we are done. I love you, baby. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy your weekend. We're out. Peace.